0: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform.
1: This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 111, recorded on May the 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And unfortunately, I'm flying solo today without my co-host, Brenda Weigel, who couldn't make it because she's busy taking care of patients today. So we'll give her a, a pass on that. But I am joined by our special guest today, Seth Rotz from Cleveland Clinic. Welcome Seth. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. We have some shared history, although different different timings. You did your undergraduate here at the Ohio State University, graduating since it is graduation season now that it's May. In fact, this weekend is OSU's graduation. So um, the timing may be bringing back fond memories when you graduated summa cum laude uh, with a BS in, in business administration. So I would say maybe you were Thinking, we'll talk about what you were thinking in terms of a medical career based on that. And then you did your MD here as well and graduated cum laude. You went to North to Cleveland to do residency at Rainbow Babies and University Hospitals at Case Western, and then went south to Cincinnati Children's to do your fellowship. And now you're back north in in Cleveland. So tell us about that journey and your undergraduate in business. And are you going to be using that undergraduate degree in any way?
0: Yeah. So it's it's funny you bring that up. So I was a December graduation. So I did the uh, indoor graduation at, at St. John's Arena wow. in uh, 2005. But yeah, I was a business major. I thought that's where I was going. And then I did a couple internships uh, after my uh, sophomore and junior years. And I realized that wasn't quite the right spot for me and decided I um, wanted to go into medicine. So then I went back and took all the uh, science classes that weren't really required for uh, business majors, and it took a little bit longer, but uh, ended up finishing uh, after another, we were on quarters at that time, so another two quarters, so I uh, finished in 2005, and I used that business part of my brain uh, here and there, but uh, certainly not an administrator at this point in my career.
1: Well, some of us do, uh, as we go on in our careers, become administrators, so you may be tapping into that brain, more and more. Currently, my understanding is you are a director of the uh, stem cell hematopoietic cell transplantation childhood cancer survivorship clinic, and you have a strong interest in fertility and fertility preservation and, and late effects, uh, cardiac and metabolic late effects, etc., and are involved in a lot of different COG groups and task force, uh, like the long-term follow-up guidelines task force at children's oncology group. And Um, working with a lot of other national groups as well. So tell us about how you gained some interest in in getting into those areas.
0: Yeah, so I, um, when I did residency, I did a MedPeds residency. So uh, for some folks that might not be familiar, it's a four-year residency instead of three, and you spend half your time taking care of adults and half your time taking care of kids. And I was kind of um, really intrigued by this idea of uh, transitions of care. So, you know, children with long-term chronic conditions, what is it like for them to become adults or young adults and transition into the adult world? Um, I had always been interested in oncology. So this idea of you know cancer survivorship, BMT survivorship was always something that was appealing to me. And always something I had in the back of my head, and then kind of further explored when I was doing uh, fellowship down at Cincinnati. So I, I spent some time, you know, doing research during fellowship in um, Stella Davies' lab. Uh, we were looking a lot at uh, cardiac late effects of, of bone marrow transplant. And then when I got uh, my job up here in Cleveland, you know, the plan was that I would take over um, running our survivorship program here. So I started spending some more time in the survivorship uh, clinic for the last six or eight months uh, of fellowship when I, uh, I came to Cleveland, there was not really a structured fertility preservation program. And I, I guess I probably didn't have a ton of appreciation for it um, at first. And um, as I was doing some extra time in the clinic, uh, the survivorship clinic at Cincinnati, I remember seeing some patients and I was working with Karen Burns. And I think you guys probably overlapped a little bit in Cincinnati. And, you know, I was presenting a patient to her I'd just seen. And, you know, she said, you know, what about fertility? And I said, I didn't ask about fertility. And she said, oh, That's usually the first thing I ask about. And, you know, we talked a little bit and, you know, really got a feel for how important that issue um, is to long-term survivors. And as I came to Cleveland, you know, and started seeing patients on my own, it became very apparent how much that stood um, on the minds of survivors. And over the first couple of years here, you know, worked with a lot of great people in Cleveland to develop our, our fertility preservation program.
1: I think your story for, for trainees is a good one in terms of you never know, even a simple conversation, one patient, one one sentence from a mentor, you know, can sort of change the course of your career. And if you embrace it and if you look at the opportunity and also the need, you went to a place that sounds like they needed that. So you were able to help help fill that niche. So that's, that's terrific. Did you have a lot of challenges if, if you were starting it from scratch there as opposed to coming into a smooth running program? setting up that program?
0: Yeah. yeah, um, It's been an adventure. So I finished fellowship about six years ago and we've gone through a couple of different stages of developing that program. You know, the first thing you need to have is people that are interested in doing it and a desire and kind of realize the importance for it and um, need partners on both the male and female side. So in um, reproductive endocrinology on the female side and, and male fertility as well. And you need some money, Um, and we've been um, really lucky that we have this large uh, bike ride fundraiser in Cleveland called VeloSano. I think you guys have uh, something similar in Columbus, like uh, Pelotonia or something, which raises a lot of money for cancer research for the hospital. And through that program, we were able to get um, some startup funds for our fertility preservation um, program, which... Uh, enabled us to hire a fertility navigator who really, you know, at this point runs the show, does all the coordination for things, um, and we have money to help offset costs uh, for patients as well. Um, but it's really been a a long uh, journey to get where we're at now, which is, I think, you know, finally getting to a a, a smooth running machine. There's some bumps in the road, but uh,
1: yeah. Were there technologies or techniques that you needed to establish, or people with expertise you needed to recruit? I'm just trying to frame it for uh, people might be listening from institutions that want to do with the same kind of thing. What, what's it going to take? Yeah.
0: Like from a technical standpoint, um, you know, I'm not a surgeon, but from a technical standpoint, every time I've talked to the surgeons, they say that this stuff is easy from a technical standpoint. Um, if you're at a place, you know, Cleveland Clinic, we're lucky enough that we're not a standalone children's hospital. So we have, you know, all these adult services, you know, right on the same campus with us in Andrology Lab and, and REI and so forth. But, you know, in terms of things like ovarian tissue cryopreservation, laparoscopically taking out an ovary, uh, you know, it seems like, at least when I talk to our pediatric surgeons, that's that's pretty uh, bread and butter for them and and same for the the REI folks. Um, And on the male side, we opened up, um, I would say about a year and a half ago, our testicular tissue cryopreservation protocol. And again, you know, what I hear from the urologists is, you know, it's a very simple procedure to, you know, do a small biopsy Of the testes that way. Now, you know, I certainly don't know how to do it. I've I've seen these both happen in the OR, and they make it look easy. But in terms of technical expertise, no, um, not from a surgical standpoint. I think you know, as long as you have a urologist or a gynecologist that's interested in this stuff, I don't think it's that technically challenging. Um, But what you do need to have um, along with you is uh, a fertility lab, um, which you know sometimes can be a little bit more challenging at a standalone children's hospital, but um, from the way I understand it, the freezing process of this tissue is not that technically challenging. Um, it, you know, there's not a, I think it takes a lot of time, but I think this, like the actual skill level is, I don't know, again, I don't do it, so I don't know for sure, but I think, um, it's nothing that is that complex that people with general expertise in the fertility area can't do.
1: And then do they store it there on site or do you contract with a third party for storage?
0: It's uh stored on, well, it's stored, um, all of our stuff right now is stored at the uh, reproductive endocrinology lab, which is part of Cleveland Clinic, but it's um, it's probably about ten miles away from main campus. So it gets uh, couriered over there quickly, and then uh, frozen, and it gets processed in the lab over there as well.
1: And then, when a survivor wants to access uh, their specimen, how do how do they go about that, and what what happens with, with these tissues? Do they get reimplanted? The yeah. So,
0: you know, it depends. So certainly if you've had somebody that's post pubertal and has done sperm banking or had an oocyte harvest done before treatment, you know, those are pretty standard reproductive techniques. You know, if you've stored semen, you can do intrauterine insemination or IVF if you have eggs uh, or semen as well. Um, for the actual tissue stuff for pre pubertal children on the female side, um, those ovaries are actually, um, as I understand it, kind of sliced up into small sections. So they don't re implant the whole ovary. They just implant uh, a couple strips of the ovary. And they're not implanted right next to the fallopian tube. They are, are just kind of put in the abdomen, and somehow um, the uh, ovulation can begin and that egg can find its way to where it needs to go. Now, the um, success rate for that, I believe, is around 30 or 40% in getting a pregnancy. Um, I think those numbers are steadily improving, but they're not. Perfect, and there's also challenges about concerns for reimplantation, right? So if you have somebody who had a you know an active metastatic malignancy at the time of diagnosis, you know you have to think hard about um, do you want to put that tissue back in? If they're a leukemia patient, even if you took it out when they were in remission, do you? How certain are you that there's not one signal um, malignant cell in there? Right now, there's not quite the technology to do ex vivo maturation of those oocytes. But the idea is that in the next 10 or 15 years, um, people feel that we'll be able to do that. So, take that ovary uh, that's sitting there and be able to treat it with some medications or hormones so that you can actually take that tissue and develop oocytes outside the body and then use those for IVF and you don't have to put the tissue back in. But that technology isn't quite ready for prime time. But, you know, when we talk about this with you know uh, patients that are now five or ten years old you know the idea is that when they want to become a parent um, that this may be you know ready to go. On the male side, the testicular tissue reimplantation is really strictly experimental, so that protocol is part of an IRB protocol right now. Whereas ovarian tissue is considered clinical practice. Um, On the male side, um, that's been done in primates, so they've reimplanted testicular tissue and had live births uh, that way, but hasn't been done in humans yet. So we are banking that tissue strictly with the idea that the technology will evolve over the next, again, you know, 10 or 20 years, so that when these kids are old enough to want to become parents, that hopefully um, the technology will have caught up with them by then.
1: Wow, that's that's interesting. Uh, returning back to the patient who might be cons- wanting to consider this, what are the some of the numbers in terms of the risks of infertility? Say for a patient undergoing chemo, for not transplant, but then undergo or undergoing a transplant, is everybody being offered this? What what are their risks?
0: Yeah, so it really varies quite a bit uh, depending on what type of chemotherapy or radiation they're going to get. Um, in general. A lot of the leukemias and lymphomas are lower risk for infertility, unless you end up going to bone marrow transplant. A lot of the solid tumors are a good bit higher risk, with a lot of the sarcomas being particularly high risk, although osteosarcoma may not be that high of a risk. Folks have come up with... a nice way of kind of characterizing the risk of infertility from a chemotherapy regimen called the cyclophosphamide equivalent dose. So basically, it looks at all the different chemotherapies you're getting, and it comes up with an equivalent dose of cyclophosphamide. And we know for males, um, doses that are less than about four grams per meter squared are pretty low risk. Uh, Four to eight or 10 is kind of intermediate risk, and higher than that is quite high risk. And the numbers are similar for females, although ovaries tend to be a little bit hardier than testes when it comes to resistance to the chemotherapy. So when we have a new patient and we're talking to them or counseling them about this stuff, we're also talking to the primary oncologist saying, hey, what treatment regimen are you going to use? What drugs are you going to use? And our fertility navigator, Kara, will take all that and put it in a calculator and be able to say to a family, your risk of infertility is low, medium, or high. And that's all part of the decision on whether or not to um, pursue these things or how aggressively to pursue these things. And you know, when we're talking about doing fertility preservation, we're also having to weigh the cancer that needs to be treated. You know, how long can we wait um, before starting therapy? Things like, Sperm banking, testicular tissue power preservation, ovarian tissue power preservation, those can all be done pretty quickly. If you're talking about doing an oocyte site harvest, you need two, two and a half weeks to get that done. And sometimes people can wait that amount of time, and sometimes they can't. Sometimes people also don't want to wait because they're anxious to get started. So those are considerations, and then you know most of the risk from the procedures um, themselves are really just anesthetic risks. Um, it's usually general anesthesia, which isn't a problem for most patients. But if you have somebody with a large mediastinal mass, um, somebody that the anesthesiologists aren't feeling good about sedating, um, sometimes you don't have as many opportunities there, and you have to start treatment right away.
1: A lot of things to think about when when considering this. The thing you mentioned before about the risk of Reintroducing a leukemia cell or a cancer, has that ever happened or we just don't have enough experience?
0: I should know the answer. I don't know the answer offhand. I have heard our REI folks talk about some studies looking at reimplantation and, you know, there were, you know, no malignancies in this study or that. But it's so hard to say, right? Like if you think about a patient with leukemia, for example, and you think about how we look at MRD testing, you know, with flow cytometry and we look at one in 10,000 cells you know how many cells are in the body 10 trillion cells um our level of resolution to say that there is no disease there is fairly limited so i think you know there is that theoretical risk and when you've taken somebody all the way through therapy you know even that theoretical risk is something to scratch your head about i think we'll know more as the technology evolves and more people have the tissues reimplanted and i think there's certainly diseases where your risk of reimplantation is not so much of a worry. If you have, you know, localized disease that's nowhere close to the abdomen, you should feel pretty good about things. Whereas you are a acute lymphoblastic leukemia patient going to bone marrow transplant, you know, maybe that is a little bit different. But certainly patients with bone marrow transplant patients with non-malignant diseases are are perfect uh, candidates for this because you're not worried about reintroducing things.
1: Yeah. No, it's um, a lot of unknowns still, I guess. And that leads me to my next next question, which is sort of what what's the research environment like regarding fertility? What are your research interests? What are the biggest questions? Other, other than figuring out how to mature the, the oocytes in the, in the lab, what are some of the unknowns that we need to answer?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things in particular. So if you ask the surgeons, the gynecologists and the urologists, they're particularly interested in how do we best um, preserve these tissues? What's the best freezing process to preserve them so you're not damaging things? How do you do those ex vivo manipulations? And I think that that's the biggest thing to carry the field forward. There's also questions about if you have patients that don't preserve gametes during treatment, is there going to be a way in the future that you can um, use you know, stem cells to eventually get to an, uh, an egg or a sperm cell? Again, that's you know way down the road there, but that's Those are the biggest things in treatment right now. From a clinical research side, you know, which is is more where I spend my time, you know, we have all these new classes of targeted therapies and immunotherapies, and we don't really know the fertility implications of those so much right now. So much of our data on fertility risk comes from things like the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, which looks at patients that were treated in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who are all adults now, and we know how they have done? And have they had children? Have they had pregnancies? And we can get some data there. Um, but there's a heck of a lot of new drugs that have come along since that you know expansion cohort was recruited. So finding out what the fertility outcomes are for people that have gotten this whole class of new drugs over the last 20, 30 years is really important to be able to prognosticate for
1: folks. That's a really great point. So are there any hints that some of these new drugs, IBS and ABS and, and cells and Things that do have impacts on fertility? Yeah.
0: So they probably don't impact fertility as much as alkylating agents, you know, classical chemotherapies that we think about, but there are some mechanisms that probably do cause issues. So, like when you look at immunotherapies, um, there's all sorts of interesting questions there. So, you can have immunotherapies causing endocrinopathies as opposed to direct damage to sperm cells and, and, and egg cells. Uh, which can cause issues with fertility. Um, there's some fascinating questions when you think about like CAR T-cell therapy. You know, For example, our, if you have somebody who received CAR T-cell therapy and has persistence of those T-cells, uh, is there a chance any of those are gonna be transferred to a fetus and a, a pregnant mother? So um, Nirali Shah at the NIH is, is starting to ask questions about those things all the targeted therapies, it really determines, or it really is a question of what their mechanism is. These targeted therapies, what exactly is their mechanism of action and how does that relate or how closely does it relate to to sperm cells or egg cells?
1: That's a, it's a good point that I hadn't even thought of. You know, I think we think of alkylators and fertility, but there could be these other, even secondary effects from some of these other, other kinds of treatments.
0: Yeah. And we do have we don't have a ton of knowledge about some of these other kind of conventional chemotherapies that were introduced later. Things like, you know, the, the taxanes, uh, veneralbine, temozolamide, so, some of these drugs that weren't well represented in the childhood cancer survivor study, they may um, have some issues, but we just don't know because we don't have that longitudinal
1: data for them. That's a great point. So are you personally studying some of these issues? What are your interests?
0: Yeah. So from a fertility standpoint right now, one of the things I'm, I'm working on is a multi-center study looking at um, reduced intensity transplant and that risk for infertility. So, you know, over the last couple of decades, transplants, particularly for non-malignant conditions, the conditioning that's used is, is less intensive, um, trying to cause less problems during transplant And one of the unknowns there is, does using less intensive conditioning during transplant mean less infertility for those folks? And that's really been an open question. So we got a group together of about, uh, I think, 14 or 15 centers to to look at data retrospectively, uh, centers that were looking at fertility markers and their survivors, and uh, trying to make sense of the data, you know, does getting a reduced intensity versus a myeloblative conditioning regimen um, lead to less infertility, less gonado failure. So um, I am, actually, uh, that's something I'll be working on later today is uh, analyzing some of that data that I just got back from the statistician.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of unknowns. I think we're getting close to time, but one sort of final question that I had was more of an ethical issue and wondering if it's being discussed at all. And that is, as we're doing more and more genomic and germline testing of patients and discovering that a lot of childhood cancers, more than we thought previously arise because of inherited cancer predisposition genes or some combination of those genes. Is there any thought that, or concern that, you know, maybe patients might not want to, or are they not, you know, they say, oh, I might have a child who has inherited my predisposition to cancer that, you know, is this something I want to go through or not?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. And, you know, one of those things about those cancer predisposition situations is most of the time you don't know that at diagnosis. There's a couple, you know, diseases out there that are textbook board question for a a cancer predisposition, you know, gene situation. But most of the time you don't know if there's a germline mutation until later on uh, once things get settled. And at that point, you've already, you know, made some decision about fertility preservation, at least before treatment. So ultimately, you know, I think one of the important things about trying to do what you can to preserve fertility before treatment is kind of this idea of leaving like an open future uh, for patients and letting them be able to decide as they get older. So many of these fertility preservation scenarios involve kids that are, you know, four or five have no idea, you know, what's going on. So, you know, my general thought is even if there is some type of germline predisposition, you give them a chance to make a decision for their themselves when they're older by preserving fertility earlier on, and I think some of that stuff's changed a little bit too. In that, you know, preimplantation genetic counseling has it, come a long way in the last several years. So sometimes there may be a um, a germline issue, but there's ways to you know avoid that. So I think that's one thing. Another thing that we haven't talked about too much is there's a large component of fertility discussions that happen after treatment in the survivorship clinic. So you have a lot of patients that may or may not have had a discussion before treatment, but now are young adults and are wondering, am I gonna be able to have kids? Um, and then some of the questions you asked, like, is this something I'm gonna pass down? Um, is my child at risk for birth defects or other issues because of my cancer or chemotherapy? I mean, these are really common questions that we get in survivorship clinic. And one of the things that we'll offer a lot of folks in survivorship clinic is well, in particular with the females, let me take a step back here a little bit. With females, if they've gotten treatment with chemotherapy, they may still have some residual ovarian function, but are at risk for premature ovarian insufficiency. So going through menopause or an earlier age. So let's say you have a 15 or a 20 year old in your survivorship clinic and um, they're having normal menses and you you test an anti-malarian hormone level and it's a little bit on the low side, but okay. But they got a whole bunch of chemotherapy and you know they're at risk for going through menopause at an earlier age. Their window for fertility may be a good bit shorter uh, than their peers or, or siblings. So we have a lot of discussions there about, or, or preliminary discussions there about meeting and, and thinking about banking eggs at that point on, knowing that that window for fertility may be a little bit shorter. You know, when you're in a situation like that, you can also, you know, already have done some genetic counseling and looking for uh, genetic predisposition syndromes and so forth. So I think that all comes into play and I don't know that there's a right answer, but I think from an ethical standpoint, at least by doing the fertility preservation prior to treatment, you kind of leave open those decisions for the the patient when they're an adult and can kind of make them for themselves. So that's a long-winded answer to a the question. And I, I I don't know if it was helpful or not.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's great. I you know, I think the, the landscape may change as as maybe someday we're doing newborn screens or full genome sequencing when born, and maybe we'll have a better sense of someone's predisposition to cancer long before they're diagnosed and they yeah. have that knowledge beforehand to make more informed decisions. But certainly uh, the field's continuing to evolve and change, and the future will look very different than the present. But it's great that uh, patients have this opportunity at programs like yours and ours to be able to do these kinds of preservations and at least keep that possibility open for the future. Yeah. So that's great. I appreciate your sharing all your insight and wisdom on this important area and the fact that we have survivors that want to consider fertility as a win for For pediatric cancer, it shows you that we've had, you know, successes over the years in our treatments, but certainly we need to continue to do that and get even better. So thanks for being here. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight. And thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.
0: We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at KidsOncDoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.